Okay, we are ready to go. You know, um, we like to think of high theology, do we not? That's what uh, the church is to be about. Low theology means low worship. High theology, the deep things of God, according to God's Word, brings forth high worship. So low theology means low worship. High theology means high worship. That's what we are about. That's what the Lord seeks. True worshipers. It's what it's all about. And we are now approaching what is a book of high, high theology. The whole Bible is high theology. But the book of Romans is highly escalated in its doctrines and theology more than any book in the Bible. It's hard to say that because every book in the Bible is highly significant. But this one book has probably made more changes in people's lives than any other book in the Bible. We'll talk about that in a moment. We just finished the book of Revelation last week and it was an expository study in Revelation. That's what we do. And it emphasized and revealed the very person of Jesus Christ. And that's what the whole book, the whole Bible does. It exalts Christ. He is at the point of focus in every book. And so that's what we focused on in Revelation. It's revealing of Him. Now, there's no change that's happening as we go to the book of Romans. Can you imagine? And I can't think of any better privilege than preaching God's Word, uh, reading it, studying it, uh, pouring over it. I can't think of any better thing to do. Can you guys think of anything better to do than that? And I want to tell you that what you see more and more is Jesus Christ He's in the heart of the Gospel. To go from the book of Revelation, which we enjoyed highly, at least I did, and then go to the book of Romans. What a privilege it is. How many here have actually been in a study of the book of Romans? Raise your hands. Most of you, right? When we did last did our study of the book of Romans, I think it was at least 15 years ago. We did that at Alpha and Omega. And um, after Alpha and Omega, then we have this place to do Romans in. Uh, we did that on the Monday night Bible study. Boy, what a joy that was. Some of you remember that. That was quite a treat. And uh, it was a blessing. And a lot of the uh, people that came in for this Reformed Theology class we're coming from all sorts of different churches, and uh, they had, uh, whether it be Lutheran, we had some Lutherans there actually, and uh, then we had some others, and other Baptist churches and such, and it was really incredible. Well, I want to tell you that uh, this book gets even better as you read it. Uh, I don't think that uh, we really know this heart by heart. It's one of those that I think that is so tremendous it would be great as uh, it's been said that it should really be known by rote. 
We should be able to have this book memorized. We should know this. Uh, at any rate, we are uh, looking at Christ and He is the heart of the Gospel. His sacrificial atonement. And then we know at the heart of the book of Romans is Christ, is the Gospel. The Gospel is all through the Bible. You really see it enhanced in Romans in a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of Gospel doctrine. Great truths of the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's the center of it. The book of Romans is the highest of doctrine of the entire Bible. I keep repeating that because concentrate as we go through this message today and as we go through the book because we are all privileged. It's not because of me. Uh, I have any nothing to do with it outside of just kind of voicing what God is saying here and then all of us coming together in agreement on it. But uh, this was really the book that started the Reformation. And had there not been a Reformation and it stayed the same, we would still be back in the Roman church underneath a pope and underneath other writings and other inspirations other than the Word of God. It would not be Christ alone. It would be not Scripture alone. It would not be grace alone. It would not be the glory of God alone. All those solas, right, that we, we know of. But uh, there was a guy by the name of uh, Augustine who goes back to the roots of the Reformation, although it was a thousand years before Luther. Uh, the story goes, uh, Augustine's life was very wanton and immoral. Uh, and he lived with a woman who he was not married to. His uh, mother prayed for him. She was a solid Christian. She prayed for him constantly. One day he was outside and he heard kids playing and singing and shouting. And they were saying uh, a couple of words, tole lege, in the Latin, tole lege, toge lege which interpreted in our English is take it and read it. Take it up and read it. That is the idea. And uh, he had scriptures that were nearby. He took it up. He turned in the Bible. You know how people do. Where can I read? Boom, they just go to a place and they go like that. Well, that's not exactly the way to study God's Word, but God got Augustine's attention. Here's what uh, he read. Romans 13, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Struck him right in the heart of his immoral life. No further would I read, he said, nor had I any need. Instantly at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And that very moment, from one sentence in the book of Romans, the church received the great Augustine that God used mightily. He was a framer of much of what is to be known as Reformation theology a thousand years later. 
your Calvins, your Luthers, go on and on throughout church history and they go back to Augustine's writings. Martin Luther, who is known as the Great Reformation starter, a thousand years later, is one who was affected in a tremendous, profound way when he understood for the first time the just shall live by faith. That's found in the first chapter of Romans, verse 16 and 17, where he understood what the righteousness of God is. You see, it seemed like he was a man after God's heart before he became a Christian. He thought he was a Christian and so did everybody else. He was a priest. He studied all the time. He went to confessional 10 to 15, 20 times a day. As soon as he would walk out of that confessional, he would turn right back around and go back and confess the sin that he had as he was walking. He knew what sin was, and he was afraid of God. He knew God was holy. I don't know how holy he really knew he was, but that Romans 1.17 changed his whole view of God, what God was all about. By the way, it's not about knowing about God. Many people grow up in the church and they know all about God, but they're not believers. They're not true. They're not the elect. Maybe they are the elect, but not saved yet. But the truth of this is, is that you must know God. Because that's how you get eternal life, knowing God. Knowing His holiness, His wrath, His justice, His grace, His mercy, and so on and so forth. Luther had to be penitent. He had to do works and works and works. He was a monk, but that lifestyle was not satisfying him. He did all the things that he thought God wanted him to do. But it didn't satisfy him. And he reads the New Testament in Greek. And he came across this profound verse. You see, the New Testament had just been converted to Greek and was made available. And Luther got a hold of that and he read this in this original language as converted. And he says, I greatly had always longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. You know how he viewed the righteousness of God? God is just. He is righteous. And we are not, which is absolutely true. And there's no way to get to God. Somebody asked Luther this, you love God, don't you? He says, love God, I hate Him. Because He knew what God demanded. Perfect holiness. No man can get there. But through Christ. We need righteousness. Luther knew that and he knew he wasn't righteous. That's why he kept going back to the confessional. He knew he was not righteous. That's a gift from God to convince him that he is not righteous. The righteousness... He thought God was so righteous... But the thing is, is that, yes, He is, but He saw only judgment out of that. The righteousness that is through grace and sheer mercy that He justifies us by faith. The just, the righteous, shall live by works, works plus faith. No. No. 
That's why it became known as faith alone. Nothing else. No works. No church. Nobody. Nothing can get us there but the person of Christ. He is our righteousness. And there he said, when I understood that, that we're justified by faith, just believing God, I felt myself to be reborn, and I've gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, it now began to fill me inexpressibly with a sweet love. The passage of Paul became to me the gateway to heaven. The justified, the righteous, live. We're saved. We live by faith. And not by sight. Not by works. John Wesley, who really wasn't a reformer, he really had some good high doctrine, but he had some uh, man-centered gospel that went in with that, and that's why he's not concluded in, in the Reformation. And he was years kind of after that anyway, but uh, he came to the truth of Romans. He read Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans, and he described the change which God works in his heart through faith in Christ. And he knew that. And you look at his brother's hymns and you'll see nothing but the sovereignty of God in those hymns. It's all God. He's the one who saves. He said this, I myself felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The book of Romans has made an impact on many of the people that we're so familiar with. John Calvin said, if a man understands it, Romans, he has a sure road open to him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. If you get the book of Romans down, you've got a good view of the whole Bible wrapped in one book. Coleridge says it is the most profound work in existence. Wow. Dr. John Cairns of Scotland wrote this, The gospel tide nowhere forms so many deep dark pools where the neophyte may drown as in the book of Romans you will have something like a glimpse of the divine depth and richness. In the history of the church, there's a very important man that played quite a key role. He was part of the English Reformation. He had a translation. William Tyndale is responsible for us being able to read in English. And whenever he wrote... Uh, commentary regarding an epistle to the Romans. He had a prologue to his epistle to the Romans, which he wrote for his 1534 edition of the English New Testament. He said this, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know Romans by rote, this is convicting, 
And without the book, without even having it, being able to read the book of Romans by your memory. Go. But also exercise himself therein ever more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. I've heard of men who couldn't read. They were blind and uh, they would have somebody read this whole book of Romans to them every day. Every morning it would be read to them. Are you thinking that what I'm thinking that Romans is very significant? Book is so tremendous. I'll have to sell you on this, I know, but I'm trying to make you realize what privilege it is as we have this in our hands this morning to read it and to get some thoughts on it. It can continue to change our lives. Did you see the men that were changed as far as being converted? God used the book of Romans on them. He uses the book of Romans on us and if we would think about it, we would grow to great heights in the Lord. Let's see what God will do as we study such an amazing, powerful book for the next who knows how long. <laughs> the Lord may come back before then. Would that be okay? I'm just hyped up on this book. Let's, uh, let's read it. Tole lege! Tole lege! Take up and read! Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, great God, may we recognize Your holiness. May we be stirred this moment and this morning about how precious Your Word is. You take one of the most highest doctrines ever taught. Impossible for a common man without the Spirit of God. Impossible for them to understand and comprehend. But through the Holy Spirit, Lord, we can understand the deep, profound truths that hardly very many people know in our time. The body of Christ does, the ones who are yours. And Lord, help us as we go through this book to make a profound effect on each one of us here. That we would have such an excitement that we'd take this book home and read it through today. Read it through tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. Or just take a passage and read it. And read it and study it. Think on it. Ponder it. And let it come into our lives deeper than ever. Lord, through Your Spirit, we give You glory as we try to understand some more of Your truths. In Jesus' name, Amen.
I'm excited. Spilling water. My hand's going like this. <laughs> Should be trembling. Should be trembling every time we open up the Bible and read this holy word, shouldn't we? Okay, Paul. We're going to start with that right there. Paul. First word in this marvelous book. Paul uh, is the writer of Romans. We'll be talking about him shortly here. He wrote this letter uh, while the Roman Empire was existing. He wrote it to the Roman church, and Rome, of course, is the capital of the Roman Empire. When the church was born in Jerusalem, some uh, 30 years before this, he, uh, we know that there were people there Paul wasn't there, um, at least that we know of. There were people from Rome and from all over provinces. It was Pentecost. It was a holy day. A lot of Jewish people would come there. These are Jewish people that are coming to a great festival. It's 50 days after Passover is celebrating and the church is born. There are people there that are from Rome and they hear... Peter preaching the gospel that day that happened. The Spirit of God filled all of the people there that became believers. So, a church was started whenever they went back. Paul did not start Romans, the Roman church. He did write to the Romans. He couldn't wait to get to Rome to see that because everybody had heard about the Roman church. There were probably different meeting places where they met all over Rome. But it's still the church. There's one church, isn't there? Even though there can be multiple buildings where people go. Paul wanted to go there. All of his ministry kept just saying that, oh, my desire is to go there to get you. And, you know, of course, he says in this book, you know, I want to get some fruit from you. I want to give you fruit. I want to give you apostolic uh, instruction here. So he wrote the letter from Corinth. It was around 56 A.D., they say that it probably was written. That is less than 30 years since Christ has died and ascended. That's a very short time, isn't it? Uh, he emphasized the righteousness, as we spoke about earlier, that comes from God. And God justifies the guilty by grace through faith, through Christ alone. And it cries out with, justified by faith. Cry of the Reformation. Faith alone. Justified by faith. Nothing else. Alone is put in there because you can't add anything to it. You're justified by that faith. It's very doctrinal. But it's very practical. We have 11 chapters of doctrine. First 8, finally you get up to Romans 8 and it is just soaring. And then you get into chapter 9 where he talks about election. The sovereignty of God in 9, 10, 11, that is the highest of all doctrine. The decrees of God and such. And then 12 through 16, it's not just for the people who like doctrine and then they you know, forget about living it. 
12 through 16 says, okay, because of this, you will live this way. You will live God's way of life. You are now transformed. So now live it through the power of God. It's practical. The doctrines that are included in here, and I'm not including everything, but it's the depravity of man. God's wrath against the sinful mankind. Justification by faith alone. Security of salvation. The transference of Adam's original sin to all of mankind. Sovereign election. God's plan for Israel. That's some of the things that you'll see in the first 11 chapters. That sounds like Theology 101. I'll tell you what, if you were doing theology and if you were to pick one book, that would be where you'd start at, wouldn't it? So he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, we start with this, Paul, a slave, a doulos. A bondservant is rather kind. It's put in the uh, English here and in my translation and most translations because the translators want to make sure in this modern church today that we don't get offended. So we're servants. Well, it is a bond servant. It's really slave. That's really what it is. John MacArthur wrote a book about it. And he made it very clear that that's what delos means. And he gives a whole book of the meaning of that word in it, from its Greek all the way to all that it meant. He just had one word on that black book, white letters, I believe it was, slave. At one time he had it in a leather kind of uh, feel of a book. It was a special one. It had a snake on it. And it was showing how, you know, man is depraved and such and that kind of thought. I think John Piper said something to MacArthur and he said, you know, he said it kind of uh, in, in fun, passing, but he said, uh, John, that, that snake on there, that's just not going to work. <laughs> anyway, we get that slave sense. Now, get, get a thought of that. This is Paul. And we're going to talk about Paul just a little bit here because he writes the book. We need to know about him, don't we? He's not the focus of the book. We know that that's coming down. In a matter of fact, it's in that same phrase. Bond servant of Christ, the slave of Christ. He's the writer. He probably is the greatest theologian who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. He was born about the same time of Christ. He was born in Tarsus. He was uh, very well educated. He went to his high school in Jerusalem and it would be the higher education. He studied under Gamaliel. You see, this Spori is a Christian. He was very Jewish. He was a Pharisee. And he called himself later, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A Benjamite, an Israelite of all people. He's a Pharisee. Breaks it down. A Pharisee was one who was far above everybody else. 
And that's what he was. He persecuted the early church. We know that in the book of Acts. And then he was converted. He was responsible for really the Gentile realm of the world. The spread of Christianity to nations that weren't Judy, uh, weren't Judy, weren't into Judaism. He went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, but he was sent to the Gentiles as a whole. Goes to cities, the first place he hunts for is the tabernacle, and then secondly, the place where he might stay, and of course we have said this for many years, that would be the local jail. And uh, we know he's in and out of prisons a lot, and that's where he'd wind up because of the preaching of the gospel. It's nothing new, is it? But he spread that Christianity. His credentials were incredible to move around in the Roman world. Very, very Jewish with that heritage. And he knew Hebrewism, but he's also a Roman citizen. And uh, that really helps a lot. Uh, this idea of doulos, slave, it's abject slavery. There is no dignity, there is no pride about being a slave. It is absolute humility. This is Paul. I just told you that he was well educated. If there was any top Pharisee, Paul would say, I'm it, before he's a Christian. I'm at the top of the line. He knew the stuff. His theology was great. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the prophets, the writings. He knew it all. He knew it very well. He had the best of teachers in Gamaliel along with his, I guess you could say, the excellency in the way that he's, his skills were. Highly skilled in interpreting Scripture. He went way beyond any of the people of his time. He knew what it was to be a servant of God. He studied the Old Testament Scriptures and you have, of course, Moses, Abraham. They were servants of God. You have David. You have Joshua. They were servants of God. So Paul, who actually was Saul before he became the Christian and got a name change, Servant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ. He doesn't hesitate to say that he's a doulos. With all his education and who he was, the way that he was able to write, the way he was able to speak, the influence that he had, and he calls himself a slave, a bond slave. No Hebrew man would want to be the servant of any other person. Especially if you were a Pharisee. But, he realized as becoming a Christian, there's only one master. And I am the slave of him, and he later writes that in Romans 6. We are all slaves of Christ, if you're a Christian. Romans 6 says, you have to serve somebody. You either serve Satan or you serve 
Jesus Christ. One or the other. And Paul knew very well what it meant to be Doulos. Because you look at his life and all the ministry that he did and all the persecution that came to him. He was sold out for Christ because he was absolutely for sure 100% who he was. What he's about, he knew the message. And the apostle here is confessing the majesty of Christ here as he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Christ being Messiah, Jesus being Savior, and that's what he is. Now the word is now coming up to be an important word. It goes along with slave. While he's a slave, he was called as an apostle. He first introduces himself as a slave, and now he says called as an apostle. He's called as an apostle. Apostle is apostolos, and it means one who is sent. It is an ambassador. It is one who actually is going to represent the country who is sending him to another country. He has a message to be given. He's an envoy, an ambassador. He's one who is dispatched, sent. He is a messenger. That's the idea. A messenger who is sent. An ambassador who is sent. Now, back in the Roman times, they had these boats called apostolic boats. You ever heard of that? Apostolic boats. Hmm, what is that? Is that where they would load up all the apostles and then they would persecute them as they go to the Isle of Crete or Patmos or something like that? The apostolic boats, let's load them up. Or the apostolic boats where you'd load up Paul and Barnabas. Hey, he's on the apostolic boat. Well, I think by now you're thinking, oh, come on, Dennis, stop that. That's not right. He, they really had a secular use. An apostolic boat was dispatched for a cargo to go to another place, another country, another city. It's dispatched. It's sent out. It has cargo to go, right? It's sent out. That's the idea of that. So Paul is saying, I'm sent. It's not that he just went. He was sent. There's a huge difference. It was not a self-will decision. It was not something that Paul said, Oh, I think I'll just take this message out. No, you see, he was called to do that. Let's look at the word apostle for a moment. And this, I do believe, is the right way to interpret apostle. Despite all the crazy churches out there, they really don't have much to do with the Word of God anyway, but they really have a show going on in their churches. I'm telling you, they really have a high time. But they really don't study the Word. And what we're doing here, that's, that would be highly unusual. You see, I don't feel anything whenever we read this Word. Uh, well, they have an idea of what an apostle is, and they all these churches have their own modern-day apostles. 
They just say, I was called to be an apostle. And everybody goes, oh yes. And they start laying hands on him. And All you have to do, and you're an apostle. I would have people come into the store and they'd introduce themselves as Apostle James. Apostle this or that, right? And I'm going to myself, no you're not. You're not an apostle. You're lying to me. That's, that's just ridiculous. It's not biblical. Mark 3.13, Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted and they came to Him. These are chosen ones that He's had to do this particular apostle thing. You'll see why. And He appointed twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And then He appointed the twelve. These are the uh, the twelve or the apostles. We could read the rest of it. Gives you the, the names there. But let's go on to Acts one, verse. Uh, well, it starts about in verse fifteen, but there's a lot to read there. <laughs> Acts one, and uh, this is where you have uh, the. Remember the disciples and they got together as 120 and that's where they're praying for the Holy Spirit that uh, that would come and it's all dealing with that issue and so and then you have they're filled with the Spirit and they speak with other tongues and the Spirit is giving them utterance and then uh, Peter says hey you know guys there was always the 12 of us and because of what Judas did of course you know he's uh, out of the picture we need a 12th apostle um, I guess you could say they're saying here's what's taking place and when you get into let's see here I believe it is look at verse 21 Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that He was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. So there's two things that they need for one to take the place of Judas. To being the twelve, and it says that he had to accompany the Lord Jesus whenever he was doing his ministry, and also to be a witness of his resurrection, to see the risen Lord. And so they had two men, and they chose one out of that by lots, and became the twelfth apostle. Later on, one comes, one untimely born, in First Corinthians 15, who is an apostle also. But there we see that there's some requirements that it takes to be an apostle. Later on in Acts 12, here's what an apostle does in 12.12 12 of 2 Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles 
That's what Paul is saying about what the, the apostles are. The signs of an apostle. Signs, wonders, miracles. And that's the idea. And of course, these apostles did that to prove what they were saying was true. Just like Jesus. What He's saying was true as He did that to support that He really was God. He just wasn't saying things. Whenever I say things, I'm not up here performing signs and wonders and miracles, am I? Because we have this as the authority now and you believe this by faith. It's the Word of God. And this is one of the greatest miracles of all time. For God is speaking to us through this Word, through this truth. And so they had also the abilities to write correctly the New Testament came from the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they are to be uh, called by Jesus Himself. They are to be eyewitnesses of His resurrection. They're able to write Scripture and also to have signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, you have to fit all those credentials to be an apostle. That can't be done today. We know that God had called Paul, though, and that's what he starts off with here in Romans. He says a slave and an apostle who was called. The word there is kaleo. That is God speaking from heaven. And if you remember that uh, Paul did not choose his salvation. He did not choose to convert. He knew the Word of God like nobody knew it. But the thing is, he was not a Christian. He was not a believer at the time. God knocked him down off that horse. He was blind for three days. You see, Saul, Paul, did not choose God. He did not do anything. All he was doing was trying to figure out what to, where to persecute the next Christians. He's on his way. He's telling Judaism what all he's done in his persecution. How many got killed? How many were imprisoned? And yet, God speaks to Saul at this time. He calls him into the ministry of the Word of God, the Gospel. So he's not an apostle because he decided to do that on his own, but it was because God decided. And any salvation by any of us is the same way. You see, Paul was dead in his trespasses and sins. As we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and a dead man cannot respond in any way, no matter how much you kick them, no matter how much you sing to them, no matter how much you preach the gospel to them, they cannot respond. You can go up there and hit them as hard as you want, right in the face, and they will not say a thing to you. They will not even respond in any way because they are dead. You can't do it unless there's a regeneration. Why can't the modern church of our times understand that? Well, the reason is because the church for 2,000 years has had a problem with that. Because there must be something that I can do. That's what Luther kept going about until he finally found out that just shall live by faith, trusting in Christ and the sacrifice. Trusting in that. That's it. That's what it's about. You see, he was called to the ministry of the Word of God. Who took the initiative? The Lord did. The idea is that this apostle knows that he was sent 
He didn't have a choice. He later says, I think in 1 Corinthians 9, that he had no choice but to preach the Gospel. And you know, in another sense, I think we, in a lighter way of putting it, our apostles in a general term, we're sent out too. As you go, wherever you're at, you might be sent out in your neighborhood, or at work, or in your family, wherever, you know, you are sent by God in that sense. He was an official apostle in that office that we're talking about. Um, the Lord calls His disciples uh, apostles. By the way, in, uh, that's in Luke 6.13. I think that's where He first called the, uh, the twelve the apostles. Now the Lord said through Ananias in Acts 9.15 to Paul, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name. Why is he saying that? That's, that's in Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 15. Why, why is he saying it? Well, because he knows who Saul is. He's in his place. In his home. And God tells Ananias, he talks to him there, and he says... Uh, Okay, so he is. I'm calling him out, and you know, he said, "This is the guy that you know in Jerusalem, or in Damascus, where that was at, or anywhere else. He's been persecuting Christians. He was on his way to Damascus, right? He got there in a lot different way than he ever thought, and so he's a chosen vessel. That's what." The Lord tells Ananias, who's helping him out there, but he's a chosen vessel. But he's got to be gone. Who? This is like the most hated man. <laughs> At least if you can use the word hate among Christians, and they can't do that, can they? should be praying for him. Maybe perhaps some more. I don't know if Ananias was, but at any rate, the, the rest of the church is scared to death of him. God send him out in a, you know an area that's far away from people for a little while to learn the what the message is really about. Okay, well, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, and he is the focus. Getting to that moment, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart. This word is very interesting. You can't serve God, you can't be a slave of God and serve Him unless you're separated. And you see, Paul knew that he was called as an apostle and he is now to be disconnected from the past that he once had. He is now set apart. By the way, there's a Greek word there for this separated here. Usually it's hagios, uh, or or uh, spirit or sanctified. I'm sorry. Uh, which is you know sanctified to be set apart. In this case, this word means phoriz. The word is aphorizano, and it means to be set apart, to be a separated one. It's very possible, from what I understand, a Pharisee meant a separated one. Ah, you know what? You couldn't be more true. Because they considered them to be separate from everybody else. 
Even all the Jews, if you were a Pharisee, you were far and above everybody. You were separated. You were better than them. You had your nose stuck up, right? But in this case, uh, that's not the idea. Yeah, he, he was a Pharisee, all right. He was set apart, but now he is set apart for the gospel of God. Do you get it? Not for his own righteousness sake, but for the gospel of God. And now we get the message. You see, he is the messenger, Paul is, and he's called as an apostle, but he's set apart for the gospel of God. The message of the ambassador, what is it? Ambassadors would represent the country. They would speak from who they are representing. An ambassador would have a message. It would be very specific what they were to deliver. In this case, it's the gospel of God. Oh, this is good news. Euangelizo is the word, and to the Roman, euangelizo was good news. It was a message. And so, throughout the Roman Empire, whenever there was something worthy, something very, very important newsy, you would send out a messenger to the different cities. A messenger would go there with one specific purpose, one purpose only, to get that message that was given to him and he was sent and to give it to the people in that city. That was Euangelizo which means good news. If an emperor had good news, like he just was given, his wife was given birth to a son, they would go out and tell that. If you had a great majestic victory over a country, you would have the ambassadors go out, messengers giving the good news. Now, Paul, knowing very well that the Romans knew this, first of all, he's saying he's a slave. And by the way, much of the Roman citizens' population were slaves. And now he says, I've been set apart. I'm a messenger. I'm an apostle who is taking the euangelion they usually thought of a UN Gelion as the messenger who brings the news from the Caesar. He's saying, I'm bringing the good news of God. I love that term, and that's why I think I put that as the title today, right? The Gospel of God. What's the Gospel of God? Everything. Good news of God. Now we know the specific one, First Corinthians fifteen. It talks about that gospel there, which is all part and parcel. I mean, it's the focus of it all: Christ on the cross, Christ crucified. But it's really the whole story of God, creation. The good news that's found in Genesis three, where you have the proto evangelium where he says, because of your sin, I will send one who will actually be the Messiah. Now, he doesn't say it that, but that's the 
first part of the good news. Because as more revelation comes, we find out that it will be the Messiah, uh, the, the Christ. Uh, he will be the one, as the prophets talk about Him, the Son of David. Uh, he will be born in such and such a city. You know, you go on and on with that. There are over 300 prophecies, you know, if you go through that Paul had good news for Rome. He had good news for Corinth. Wherever he went, he had good news from God. It was the gospel of God. Now look at this. Look in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He wrote this to the Corinthians, which is a place of a, a church where he was a major part of, wasn't he, for quite some time. 1 Corinthians 2.2, he reminds him, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I had a message to give you to Corinth. There are more words to it, but the idea is it's all focused about Christ and the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection, and all that entails, and who God is, and all that, right? But that was my gospel. In chapter 9, verse 23 of Corinthians. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, euangelion, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I do everything for the gospel's sake. That's what every motive of his was about. Just that. And you know what? It's not just good news. It's old good news. Because you see, this news is not new. What? What did I just say? The good news is old news that is brought fresh. Because you see, the Gospel is all through the Old Testament. But it seemed to be a mystery, didn't it? You know, you... Um, Take a look at Genesis 3.15. This was to Adam and Eve, and immediately after their sin, He gave bad news, but He gave good news. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman as He's speaking to the serpent there. And head between your seed and her seed, your evil seed and her seed that's going to come through ultimately, it's going to go to the Messiah. He, who's He? It's Messiah. He shall bruise you on the head at the cross. That's where it was all done. And you shall bruise Him on the heel. Where would you rather be bruised at and had pain? On your heel or on your head? It means He will do major damage to Satan, won't He? Malachi 4.2 Malachi just woke up. No, no, just kidding. He was, all, he was awake all along. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. One of the last verses here is Malachi 4.2. And it says, But you, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, did you get that? The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You know what? That's a great promise. Because there had been a lot of judgment spoken through the prophets. 
Malachi is speaking, and this is the last time you'll hear from prophets until Christ comes 400 years later. But it gives good news there. That is the Son, S-U-N, who is the S-O-N of righteousness, right? Oh my, uh, it's really time to close this out. I might have to do a little bit more on this next week. I do want to just hit this enough. It says in verse 3, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh. He was born as the son of David. This is the person of the message now. Paul, who is the slave, who is an apostle, a messenger, has a message. And who is, we know what the message is, it's the gospel of God, the most important message that there ever could be in the history of all of the universe, the gospel of God. There's nothing better, folks. And at the heart of it all is a person. It's Christ. The gospel, it concerns His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the theanthropic person. Theo is God. Theanthropic here that we're dealing with. This is is actually a person of God, a theanthropic person, the eternal, yet one who is one uh, like us. Son of David represents humanity. He came to be the seed of David. He came to be, not that he was never the son of God, but here, you know, he's a, he becomes a seed of David. The word there for seed or um, descendant is the word spermos. Some of you might catch that, but that's seed. And he came through the loins of David, not only from the tribe of Judah, of uh, he says from, if you remember in, um, I think it's Numbers, it deals with, there's going to be one who comes from the tribe of Judah. And you think of uh, this being the very son of David, the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's narrowed down to be the son of David. And he preached Davidic sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what's his message here? Well, he speaks about this because he recognizes that David is the son of the Lord Jesus in the sense that there was a physical birth that came through the loins there, but it, better yet, it connects him to the promises of the prophets of the Old Testament, which he promised, he says in verse 2, he promised beforehand through his prophets. He gave the Old News in the Old Testament and it becomes new in the New Testament, but it's still the same news. <laughs> Do you get that? He already promised that this would happen, but it came to fruition in the New Testament. The lights come on then. So it connects him with all the promises of the Old Testament. It connects Jesus, who is this man. This is how Romans starts speaking about Jesus. Speaking about the Old Testament, this has already been written. To validify this, right? He would use the Old Testament Scriptures much. 
the Davidic sonship on one side and then the Son of God, deity on the other one. A descendant of David according to the flesh. And he's not really you know, putting humanity and deity and all the two natures there so much. And it is true. You know, he is man and he's God. But there's something more that he's really pointing at here, and it's the next one of this duo. Who was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Boy, Paul would have been great to give evidence like a lawyer does. He's just getting right off the top of the bat in four verses. Look how this is stuffed. Incredibly. We should take one verse at a time every Sunday and go through Romans. I would not live long enough to do that, would I? And some didn't make it all the way through Romans when they did that. It would be the right way to do it, probably. Uh, Human existence, and he's appointed to a higher status. S. Lewis Johnson says that, yes, Paul recognizes that he has Davidic sonship. And he's connecting him with the Old Testament. But by virtue of the resurrection of Christ, he was appointed Son of God with power. He's appointed to this statue of where he's at, of the resurrection. I mean, this is the place where. He really wants to go. Paul does. He's more than a mere man. Although that is true. And there are many places in the Bible about the dual nature. And definitely it's teaching that here. But uh, the emphasis here is not so much the seed of David, but as the seed of God. In the sense that he's the son of God. Never born as the son of God. He's always been here. So, you have a human nature, a divine nature, yet he's one person with two natures. The spirit of holiness, power by the resurrection. Can you imagine? We could go into the doctrine of the resurrection. I'm not going to do that now, but it's probably better to take this as consecration, although I definitely think everything that he did was by the spirit of God. You have the triune God involved here, so that's one sense. Another one... You can see it as a little s. My version actually has a big S. Spirit of holiness, so don't have any trouble with that. It's definitely the Spirit of God that's involved there. But also, He was consecrated uh, His whole life was driven by the Spirit of God and also the very Spirit of holiness. That's His character. The principle of holiness. That's who he is. He's holy. That's what his whole life about. Holy, obedient was Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that finishes that section up in the first four verses here. I hope it whets the appetite for you to study such a great book that God has given. I'm just overwhelmed by it and I'm uh, just so privileged and graced to be able to bring it forth and uh, get thoughts moving in our head.
about who God is to each one of you. Let's pray. Father, great God, You are awesome. You are holy indeed, and as You give us this good news, the Gospel of God, we're overwhelmed that 2,000 years later here, You call us into this same family. We have the same message that Paul had. And we get to take his letters now and study them that are written by your Spirit ultimately and then they're impressed upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. May we lead a life of holiness that would reflect upon who Jesus Christ is. Lord, thank you for this precious time today as we have worshipped you and may we now, who have received by reading Your Word here in the power of Your Spirit, that this would be high doctrine that pours out from us high worship. In Your Son's name we pray, Amen.